Welcome back to another episode, actually the last episode of season two of The Den Tapes. I am your host, Tony. Go ahead, get yourself nice and comfy, and let's see if we can give you a case of the heebie-jeebies. This week's episode will contain some content of a graphic nature. Listener discretion is advised. Today's story is called Bedlam and the Grin Maker. Part 1 Cold, Lonely, Darkness. Benjamin Bedlam took hold of the knob and paused before he rushed out of the front door. Blinking his eyes a few times, he lowered his hand and sighed. Hearing the words she said almost caused him to turn around and not leave. But to face her, the one he had promised to always take care of was something he had not mustered the strength to do. He could not dig deep enough inside of himself to bloom the courage to turn from the door, remove his hat and coat, and stay there. You may never come back. One of these nights will be your last going out that door. Her words echoed through his head, bouncing off each spot where the migraine pulsated. But he knew whatever that frantic call from his partner was about, hesitation was not in the cards. Get here now! His partner's words took precedence. With a deep breath and a massage of the temples, he raised his hand back to the cold metal sphere. The knob turned, the bolt popped free, and the door squeaked as it opened. The high-pitched twill of the brackets caused him to wince. His head pounded. The streetlights belted him in the eyes, doubling the pain. Descending the concrete steps, he fumbled his keys, rain beating down heartily, large drops the size of golf balls pounding against the top of his Brixton fedora. Once again, his head felt as if it was on the verge of explosion. Part of himself wished it would just explode and put him out of his misery and satisfy her. He whispered to himself, "Ah, What I would give to have this be the last time through that damn door. But he knew it was a statement devoid of true meaning. More than anything, he longed for the day that he never had to leave the house with fear that he may not return. He looked back towards the house, her silhouette in the dimly lit front door. She shook her head. He couldn't see her eyes, but he knew she was crying. With a swift jolt of her arm, the door slammed shut. A howling wind engulfed Bedlam, causing him to hold his fedora in place while rain splashed against his face. The creaking of the big steel car door made him cry out, 
Oh, for fuck's sake. The pain rippled from his left temple around the side up over the ear, circling his skull and ending in a thud only to be felt on the right temple, then back and forth, repeating three times. The motor roared, shaking the two-ton Ford beast. The pain stopped with the vibration. Oh, thank God. He muttered as he calmed himself, leaning his head back on the seat, closing his eyes tightly. He listened to the low hum of the engine, the rain pounding against the steel roof of the car. Flashes of blood, the torn flesh, those lifeless eyes, slices into each cheek, forming the grin. He jerked his head forward, giving it a little shake, a soft smack on the cheek, catching a glimpse eye to eye with himself in the rear view. With a sigh, he put the car into gear and pulled away. Oh man, you know that's just another word for crazy, right? A beat cop asked him about his name. I am well aware, thank you. Bedlam sternly mused without looking at the officer standing in the hall of the duplex. He walked through the threshold of 306B. A few more officers guided him to the body. His partner was standing there and welcomed him. Crouching down, Bedlam's eyes were affixed on the pattern of blood on the wall. Above the highest few specks of freshly drying blood, a cross hung, tilted ajar. He stood and with a gloved hand, he placed a finger at the base of the cross, inspecting it. He looked down at the body, mentally taking note of how it was hunched over, knees and shins on the floor, arms outstretched towards the wall. She was praying when she was attacked, asking for help or getting one last prayer of penance in before she died, he said as he turned towards his partner. Ah, who gives a shit what she was doing? She's deader than a doornail. The weapon, it's right there next to her. The husband, man, he ate a bullet. He and half his head are on the fucking couch. Case closed. Jesus, Bedlam, it's always these ponderous fucking backstories with you. His partner said angrily, shaking his head, turning to leave the room. As he joined fellow officers on the stoop of the house, Bedlam heard the man mock him. She was praying, guys. Jesus, please make my husband stop pummeling me in the back of the head with that fucking cast iron frying pan. I'll say ten fucking Hail Marys. The officers laughed along with him. Unfazed, Bedlam continued to look around at the scene. I suppose it is an open and closed case, he muttered, pinning a few notes in his pad. He then stuffed it into the inner pocket of his overcoat and adjusted his fedora. Sauntering towards the front of the house, he stopped at the edge of the living room. Returning to the body, he stood there staring at the cross, hanging crookedly on the wall. He snapped another glove on and used two fingers to slide it back into place. He glimpsed at the body and shook his head lightly, clicking his tongue. I hope you found your peace, he whispered. The following morning, Chief Thompson tapped two knuckles on Bedlam's open door. Hey, you uh, got a minute? He asked, without awaiting an answer. He stepped in and sat down on the leather couch across from the desk. 
Closing the door behind him, he said, Hey, I wanted to be the first one to tell you, okay? Bedlam sat back in his chair. The wood creaked. The springs squeaked, cutting through the awkwardness of the chief's hesitation. Uh, don't stand there like a child. Please, tell me, Bedlam said with a smirk. <sighs> Jesus, Bedlam. Has it ever been this fucking bad around here? When we were young, patrolling, I mean... Do you remember such heinous shit happening? The chief asked. Bedlam leaned forward. Interest peaked. He crossed his arms on the desk. Uh, Daryl, it's not that it's gotten any worse. We are just old enough now to know that we can't stop it from happening. What do you have there? He asked, gesturing for the chief to hand over what he held in his hand. Chief Thompson shook his head slowly while he rubbed at his thighs. Ah, Ben, he's back. A couple of uh, security guards at the church up off of 50th responded to a distress call. They called it in to us, told us some little girl was stuck in a drain pipe or something in the kitchen. Turns out it wasn't that at all. He lured him there with the ploy of a girl in danger. When we got there, Bedlam, those two boys were completely fucked. Eyes popping out of their fucking skulls, arms and legs twisted to hell from being bent and bound to those fucking chairs, you know, just like all the others. And that grin sliced into both their faces. It was the second of the night, you should know. Someone else called in with a little girl in trouble. And when our guy showed up, he got popped. That rookie... Bedlam, he was deader than I have ever seen death, and he had that damn grin cut all to shit into his cheeks. Altogether, three victims, two guards and one serviceman. Seems like he's making up for lost time. Bedlam huffed under his breath and leaned back in his chair. It's been a year since the last Grinmaker victim. Five years since the first. Chief Thompson hung his head, sighed, and slapped his hands down on the crisp top of the cushions on either side of him. As he stood, he sternly muttered, Oh, and, uh, there were notes left at each scene. He finally handed over the envelope that Bedlam had beckoned for. As he left the office, he stammered through, They, uh, they're addressed to you, Bedlam. Bedlam watched as the chief continued away down the hall. From his utensil cup, he pulled his reading glasses and slid the arms behind each ear. The first letter read, Detective Bedlam, remember, no matter how bright the light may be, there will always be a darkness waiting patiently to engulf the once illuminated. The second letter read, Bedlam, do I have your attention yet? It can only be you who is to engulf what I illuminate with your own cold, lonely darkness. He sat back, waving the second note with a few rolls of his wrist. As he contemplated what they could mean, the springs of his chair howled once again. Resting his head and staring at the ceiling, a blast of pens poked at the inside of his head. Another migraine was coming on. He closed his eyes and brought his hands to his face, rubbing his forehead lightly. Flashes of blood 
dead eyes and bloody cheek lacerations overtook his mind. Shaking himself back to reality, he looked down at the letters once more. He thought about how the letters were typed. Maybe he could trace the typewriter that had been used to write them. But what good would that do? They're sold in nearly every damn department store here in the region, he thought. The wording of the cryptic prose, no date, no signature, no cordially yours, striking him with any ideas. He stood quickly from his desk, taking care of the letters, moving them into the top left drawer of that old steel wooden topped desk. Part 2. The Woeful Ones She stood over him at the bedside, running a hand through his hair as he slept. Bedlam jerked awake and smiled at her, batting his eyes a few times. She lowered her hand to caress his cheek. Good morning, my sweet love, she whispered, brought herself down onto the side of the bed and leaned in to kiss him on the forehead. I did not hear you come in last night, she said, standing and walking to the bedroom door. Bedlam sat up, scooted to the headboard, and watched as she disappeared into the hallway. Her voice echoed into the room. I am happy you made it home. Bedlam's head filled with the chief's words. Ben, he's back. And his smile slowly painstakingly deformed into a look of stone-cold concentration. Bedlam will never forget the Grinmaker's first victim. He sees her face every time he closes his eyes. The last year without a Grinmaker victim had the department convinced that whoever it was that had been subduing their victims with a paralytic and then slowly forcing their open mouth down onto a set of strained wires had been picked up for some other crime, or maybe, just maybe, had been caught in the act by a Melasse crime family henchman. But those were just theories, because now he was back at it. Bedlam was at a loss for what could have caused him to break his cycle and take over a year off. And he also switched his M.O., leaving letters at the scene, also using the ruse of a little girl in peril to trap victims. Not to mention three victims in a single night. Bedlam rose from the bed and washed up. Downstairs, he heard the record player spinning songs of Glenn Miller in his orchestra. But he did not smell fresh coffee. Uh, just another way for her to let me know she doesn't want me to leave, he thought. Fresh brewed coffee always means a start to a new day. A new day that once again saw him walking out that door. That door he may never return through. For five years, she had expressed how dangerous hunting the city's most wanted killer could be. Bedlam had yet to tell her the Grinmaker was back. Not only back, but he was also leaving Bedlam love letters at the scenes. Deep down, he knew she was aware, because Bedlam himself was aware and one thing he had learned about love was soulmates always had a knack for being inside each other's heads. Your eyes tell all, she always would say. Her eyes welled as he said goodbye. I know, you don't have to say it, Benjamin. 
Her voice swiveled through the air, caressing his ears. He hung his head and walked to the door, taking the knob hesitantly. Look, I have to get him. I can't rest until I do. I hope you understand, Bedlam said as the door swung open, then shutting behind him as he stepped through. The chief was there at his office door waiting when Bedlam arrived. He was holding a bag. As Bedlam approached, he held it up. Guitar strings, they both said. Bedlam continued. It's his M.O. The chief handed him the bag. I don't know what we'll do with these any different than we did with all the others, the chief said. I am going to pull up my notes from... Bedlam paused, contemplating his wording. He did not want to say the name. He finished. The, uh, notes from the first victim. The chief placed a hand on Bedlam's shoulder and said, Look, Ben, we'll get that son of a bitch, okay? The chief's soles scuffed along the tiled floor as he walked away. Bedlam looked down at the bag of guitar strings in his hand. He tossed them onto the leather couch and closed the door. He made his way to the dual filing cabinets in the corner. A drawer squealed as he opened it. Metal against metal cut through the silent room. He fingered at a rectangle sea of files. He saw the name he refused to mutter minutes earlier and the date from five years prior with the case number typed atop. He pulled it from the drawer and used his hip to close it. The file fell open as he flung it onto his desk. He took his reading glasses out and began to scan the endless flow of words. Any normal person who read those words would wince, but Benjamin Bedlam had read the same series of heinous accounts 23 times now. Victim rendered paralyzed medically. Wires redacted and replaced with guitar strings, stretched tightly with some device. Victim's weight distributed from vertical slant, mouth open, onto stretched wires, again redacted and replaced with guitar strings. Lacerations from corner of mouth up into cheekbone, where the pressure breaks strings. Victim placed on back to choke on blood. Bedlam spoke to himself out loud. Now, there are only two stores in this city that sell these particular brand of guitar strings. If that is the brand we believe them to be, he stood from the chair and rolled it back against the wall as he paced. No definite way to pen down the brand without a packet. He turned 180 degrees and returned the length of the office. No device has been found. The strings have to be at least three feet in length, minimum, for them to be stretched so tight, tight enough to inflict the wounds. He paused and thought a different word from the one he just used. The grin, he thought. He turned again, back along the floor, his shoes shuffling. Assuming injections of bromide are what he uses to subdue his victims. He stopped and leaned over the desk to grab the file. He flipped a few pages and found the name of a pharmacy that had been searched. The pharmacist cleared. Wait a second, wait a second, here, he muttered. He clamored to the filing cabinets. 
For 30 minutes, he scanned every file on the Grinmaker murders. Each one had a different pharmacy and pharmacist that had been cleared. All pharmacies within 50 miles had been looked into, looked over, and looked around. A knock came at his door. Come on in, Bedlam announced with his back to the door, placing each file back into the drawers. He heard the door open. What can I do you for? He asked, still turned around. He heard something slide onto his desk and whomever was in there with him scurry out the door. He turned to see an envelope with his name written on it. He darted his gaze out the window and caught a man in a black suit in fedora walking away quickly. It's him! It's him! Hey, it's him! Bedlam yelled, grabbing the envelope from the desk as he burst through the door. With all the noise from the station, only confusion washed over the crowd there. Bedlam raced down the hall to the front entrance, slamming through the wooden gate and out the doors. He turned frantically in circles on the sidewalk as the sounds of a busy metropolis engulfed him. But midday in the city sees thousands of men in black suits and fedoras. The chief descended the stairs behind him. Bedlam, what the hell are you fucking hollering about? He held up the envelope and said into the midday air, still scanning the street. He dropped this one off personally. He walked right past everyone, knocked on my office door, slid it onto my desk. He was right fucking here. The chief beckoned him back inside. At his desk, he opened the letter, Bedlam's glasses tilting on the edge of his nose. What's it say? The chief asked. Bedlam read aloud. Ben, when darkness can't be lit, a doctor's cure can be drank or bit. When pills or potions can't be found, where, oh where, should the woeful ones drown? He's fucking mocking us, Bedlam said as he pulled his glasses from his face. Does he mean a bar? Jesus, Ben, if he's talking about a bar, we can't search every fucking single one. We'd need 50 men on two 12-hour shifts back-to-back for a fucking month. Hell, the number of watering holes tripled in this city when Prohibition ended. All those speakeasies are now fucking legit businesses. Bedlam nodded. He's telling us he does not use corner stores or soda jerks to nab his bromides. He buys them privately. The chief shook his head. Get your game plan together, Bedlam. We need to take some sort of action right fucking now. By the end of the afternoon, he turned and left. Bedlam then reread what he had not read aloud, a P.S. at the bottom he did not let the chief see. It began with you. It ends with you. When this is over, you'll grin too. Part 3. Your Grin Awaits Bedlam snuck around the few men huddled under the awning of the paper stand. He handed the man a few coins and took a paper from the slot. The rain pounded against the fabric above him. His head raged again. He squinted his eyes as he tucked the paper under his arm. He rubbed his temples, sliding his fedora back a bit. As he looked down, he saw a new issue of the most popular comic book. The newest villain for the famed masked hero stared up at him. A boisterous, clown-like smile painted on a sinister face. 
Even the comic books these days couldn't ignore the Grinmaker. In fact, they had embraced him. Horseshit smut, Bedlam huffed. Doesn't take a cape and fancy fucking toys. Takes a brain and wherewithal. He said as he stormed off to his car, slammed the door, and slid in quickly. He tossed his hat to the side and opened the paper, the street lamp above him providing just enough light to read. The shadows of the raindrops landing and rolling down the windshield danced on the surface where he read. Frustrated, head throbbing, and with no urge to go home and face her, Bedlam opted for a stop at Fred's on the north side of Richmond, just over the bridge. He also had an ulterior motive for the visit. Fred Sampson was his old informant during the pro years. Fred would rat out everyone and their mother who was pouring just as long as Bedlam did not shut him down. Now with a legit serving license and paid in full liquor tax, Fred was above the table and doing quite well. If there was a small chance at finding any info on the Grinmaker and his bromides, Fred Sampson was Bedlam's best bet. He shook off the rain and hung his coat and hat as he entered. The bar was far from full, but it was not quiet. When the men realized a copper had walked in, after Fred welcomed Bedlam, the volume decreased to a much more reasonable level. Bedlam reached across the bar top and shook Fred's hand. Pooch, normal, and a few questions, he said. Fred smiled and exclaimed, Hey, the hooch is cheap, but answers will drain your wallet. The bar howled with laughter. Bedlam cackled along with them. Fred poured amber liquid into a small glass and asked, What kind of answers you looking for, Bedlam baby? Bedlam sipped on the hooch. The aroma burned his nose more than the taste did his throat. He grunted and asked with a grit to his freshly tainted speech. Ooh, you know anyone that peddles in medicines? The hard stuff? Fred stood up straight, almost defensive, and cracked another joke. If you's looking for some aspirin there, detective, Johnny down at the jerk can set you up. The bar howled again. This time, however, Bedlam did not join in their jubilation. He took down the remainder of the liquid, this time not grunting, and motioned for another three-finger pour. I am talking something that knocks you out. Much like I can do to you with the butt of this. He placed his pistol on the bar top. The crowd fell silent and chose to ignore the rest of Fred Sampson's and Detective Bedlam's conversation. Fred bent over the bar again, this time his voice low and not harboring humorous overtone. Lots of guys peddle the snow, the tar, the nine. Bedlam waved a hand and interrupted Fred. None of those. Do you know what bromides are? Fred shook his head. Not a clue, he muttered, tossing a bar towel over his shoulder and standing up straight to pour Bedlam another drink. The Grimmaker, I'm sure of it, uses the stuff. If I can find who's selling, I'll nail that bastard. Bedlam said as he nodded in thanks as Fred slid his full glass over. Bedlam peered down at his watch. He was getting late. The door to the bar opened and someone came inside. 
Bedlam noticed the men at the bar turned but paid no attention. No waves, no exaggerated greetings. They clearly were not familiar with whoever had just walked in. The bar stool next to him slid and the man sat down. May I buy that for you? The stranger asked. Bedlam tilted his head to take in the man. Black suit, black fedora. A rush of earlier in the day flashed in his mind. This couldn't be, there's no way, he thought. Fred stepped away, sensing the barroom was about to become tense. Before you retrieve that pistol, Ben, let's have a drink and take a look at this. The man said, placing his hand on the bar top, upturned to show Bedlam what was in his palm. It was a bracelet, her bracelet, the one she cherished. Bedlam jerked with anger, but the man closed his hand and quickly shifted the bracelet back into his pocket and tisked Bedlam. Now that I have your attention, finish your drink and let's take a walk. As interested in me that you are, I am equally interested in you. The words flew from the man's mouth like pulsing coals pop and shoot from a fireplace. Bedlam knew without a doubt the Grinmaker had found him, not the other way around. No one in the bar paid them attention as the two men left. The rain pelted down hard, hard enough that Bedlam was disgusted at the fact that he had to lean in and listen to the brutal killer he had been chasing for so long. To pay him attention when all he wanted was to blow him away. I ought to just blow a hole right in your fucking chest, Bedlam said over the rain. But that wouldn't bring us full circle, would it? The Grinmaker said. Bedlam was struck by how sad the man looked. You know, for someone forcing their victims to smile for eternity, you don't look like much of a chipper fella, Bedlam said. The man forced a smile, exaggerating it like a child would when told to smile for a photograph, mocking their parent. It devolved into a sinister sneer, and he spoke again. Now, Benjamin, there is only one way this ends. The others have been nothing more than a means to get to you, to get under your skin, to get to this, our final showdown. They had stopped, staring at each other intently. What do you mean, get at me? Bedlam asked. The Grinmaker finally seemed to grin. You get what you want, and I get what I want. He held up her bracelet, jingling it like a man trying to catch a fish. What could you fucking possibly want? Bedlam asked angrily, trying not to punch the man in the face, standing with his hands clenched at his side. I am tired. I want this all to end. There is no thrill any longer. I mean, look at me. I'm here to flip the switch, to turn off the lights. I'm throwing myself at you, Bedlam, the man said. His face turned back to the deeply disheveled look he had had earlier. Bedlam found himself thinking about her, how he wanted this to be done as well, how she had wanted him home and out of harm's way so they could finally be together like they were before him the Grinmaker. 
Maybe we can figure out a way for this to end for the both of us, Bedlam said. The grin maker popped an eyebrow up. Bedlam continued. That bracelet is the only thing that's left of her. I thought I had misplaced it. Flashes of her, lifeless, that grin cut into her cheeks. The Grinmaker's first victim, Cora Bedlam, his wife. The woman of the ghost that had haunted him for five years, pleading with him to not die out in the line of work. If you die out there, with me stuck in here, our eternities will be spent apart, Benjamin. She whispered into his ear every night, lying beside him in the bed they used to share. You want out? I do too. Hell, just let me be your last victim. You get me, you never butcher a face again. The Grinmaker looked up at Bedlam, dumbfounded. Uh, you have yourself a deal. They shook hands and for the first time in years, Bedlam felt at ease. Three conditions. One, you do it at the scene of the first crime. Bedlam said, knowing that if he explained to the man he wanted his spirit to haunt the same house that Cora's did, he would laugh at him. So he offered up, bring this circle you talked about to a close, right? The man nodded. Two, you leave me a piece of your legacy that I will make sure gets found if you do not retire from killing folks. The man nodded again. And three, you flee the city. You find a nice, quiet spot somewhere out in the countryside, and you live out your remaining years knowing you got away with it. For the third time, the man nodded. Eleven o'clock, tomorrow night. Bedlam finished and turned from the man. When he returned home, she met him at the door. Oh, what are you doing, Ben? She asked. She knew because he knew. His one true love knew every want and thought that crossed his mind. She smiled and wrapped him in a vaporous embrace. An embrace Bedlam knew he would feel the same that she did in due time. The following morning, he said his goodbyes. The only one that hit him hard was to the chief. Uh... You won't understand this, but if tomorrow comes and I'm no longer here, I didn't give up on the world, okay? I just chose to live in it in a very different way. The chief smiled and said, You're really living up to that name there, Bedlam. Sounds like you're going fucking nuts. And they both laughed. The day fell into dusk. The rain eased to a drizzle as the moon poked through the clouds. When the knock came, Bedlam sent Cora away. I don't want you to see this. I'll be with you soon, though. She closed her eyes and dissipated into the place between his world and hers. He welcomed the man in. An urge to ask his name came, but Bedlam let it go. He watched as the Grinmaker produced a box of wood. He folded it out, metal latches firming it into a U-shape. The strings stretched tight. You know, I always wondered how you did that, Bedlam said matter-of-factly. 
On opposite sides of the wooden contraption, there were mechanical guitar tuners, a set of three on each outside part of the box. Your grin awaits, Bedlam, the man said as he handed Bedlam a glass vial. Drink this. You'll be out cold shortly. Bedlam shook his head. You're forgetting part two of our agreement. The grinmaker smiled softly and patted his device. I'm leaving this here with you. Where should I hide it? Bedlam pointed to the second floor. Pull down into the attic is in the hallway. Up there to the left in the far corner is a loose board. Hide it in the wall. The grinmaker nodded. Bedlam took down the bromide and faded away. Part 4 With the Light of His Love Your dad left you this? Nancy Forrester, soon to be Nancy Bedlam, asked as she looked around at the inside of the old house where she and her fiancé Nathaniel stood. Yeah, it's been in the family for, I think, four, five generations now. Apparently it's haunted, he chuckled. Haunted? Nancy asked with a concerned look. He waved her concerns away. Oh, it's nothing. My great, great, maybe great, maybe three greats, I'm not sure, but my great, great aunt and uncle were murdered in here. But for all I know, there's never been any ghosts. Nancy laughed one of those laughs that let Nathaniel know that she did not for one second believe him. Well, uh, I guess we better get this place packed up, huh? We got the movers coming in a couple of days, he said. Three days into clearing the house out for the remodel, Nathaniel found a loose board in the wall while he was moving boxes from the attic. Hey, babe, do you know what this is? It looks like some kind of instrument. You know, like the ones that you lay across your lap, he asked. A dulcimer? Yeah, yeah, one of those. It looks like it opens. The strings are all broken to shit, though. They sat the wooden box on the floor and unlatched the sides. Folding it out carefully, they found a note inside. It read, We came full circle with the light of his love. He returned to the one I took from him. As promised, a bond unbroken. With Cora the first, Benjamin became the last. When this is found, whether the next day or years from now, this is the information you need to pen me, the Grinmaker. They looked at each other, puzzled. What does that mean? Nathaniel asked. Nancy pointed at the bottom. It's signed with a name and date. Nathaniel read it out loud. Whitmore Calvin Hendricks, 1939. Huh. I think we need to get this to the police, Nancy said. Nathaniel nodded and he called the non-emergency line. She listened in as he explained what they had found. He hung up and looked at her. Uh, They'll be here soon. I'm going to keep working, though, he said as he ascended the stairs. She followed him and motioned she was going to work on the master bedroom. He nodded and patted her on the butt and continued down the hall. As she turned to walk through the door, Nathaniel stopped and jumped from her massive scream. 
He turned and ran to her, falling to the floor where she had collapsed. He wrapped his arms around her and asked, What? What? What is it, honey? He pleaded with her as she breathed erratically. I, I saw, I, I saw, I saw, she stuttered. She turned her head and began to shake, burying her face in his chest like a terrified child. She whispered, I, I saw two ghosts, Nathaniel. They had smiles cut into their faces. Today's story was track scored, mixed, and mastered at the Great Divide Den. It also concludes season two. I appreciate all of you out there that listen. From me, Tony, to you, the biggest thanks. Also, to keep updated for when season three will drop, I suggest you give a follow at the Den Tapes, Instagram, and the Den Tapes on Facebook. Season three is already in the works, so keep updated there. And we'll see you then for another case of the Hebe GBs. Mm-hmm.